Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Here's the podcast for The Jeremiah Johnston Show. And don't forget, you can also listen live across the Faith Radio Network Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central or 12 Eastern for the entire hour. And if you want your question read on the live show, go ahead and send it to me at www.askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. Welcome to the program. This is Jeremiah Johnston. It is great to have you with us wherever you are listening from across Faith Radio Network or later in one of the podcasts related to this program or perhaps listening live uh, through the website or the excellent Faith Radio app. Wherever you are tuning in from today, God bless you. Thank you for investing your time in this program. This is the program that addresses the unanswered questions that all of us face in our Christian journeys. And today, I am so thrilled and thankful to the Lord to dedicate an entire program to the often described forgotten member of the Trinity. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. What is so great about teaching on the Holy Spirit is every single believer has the Holy Spirit. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this message in its entirety applies to you. Now, there's so much confusion when we bring up the topic of the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that? And yet there shouldn't be. The Holy Spirit is very clearly articulated and described in the Christian scriptures, in both the Old and New Testament. You're going to be able to answer questions as a result of today's program, questions like these. These are questions every believer should be able to answer. Am I walking in the Spirit like Galatians 5.16 commands us to? Or do I quench the Holy Spirit? 1 Thessalonians 5.19. This is a biggie right here. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Ephesians 5.18. In fact, that's going to be our base text. So if you have your Bible handy, go to Ephesians chapter 5 so you can prepare for my message. Do I pray in the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 6.18? Am I being led by the Holy Spirit according to Romans 8.14? Am I a spiritual Christian being taught through the word of God by the indwelling Holy Spirit? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 through 16. In fact, we can't know the scripture. We cannot interpret it effectively without prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit. So you're going to be able to know as a result of today's message, if you'll tune in the entire hour, if you are ministering in your own strength, or if you are living by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And one of the most important things that you're going to be able to answer as an immediate um, as a result of you tuning in and investing your time today in this program, am I a loving person? Am I a believer marked by joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control? What is that? Oh, yes. That is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which, of course, is described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This is a message that, you know, I have the opportunity, friends, to address all kinds of unique questions in the church at large. But there is something that happens every time I have the opportunity to just simply open the Word of God and teach about the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
the response is always tremendous, and that is because the Holy Spirit should not be the forgotten member of the Trinity. When I learn more about the Holy Spirit, it energizes every aspect of my Christian journey. And so today's message is, is especially applicable to you. I want you to tune in with us. We're going to go to the message, and as a result, you're going to be able to take careful notes and answer these questions. And I want you to have your Bible out to Ephesians chapter 5. Go to verse 18. We're actually going to be discussing the larger context of Ephesians chapter 5 and the larger theology of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know you're struggling with this because I receive hundreds of questions from our listeners that just need clarification about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to go to this message about spirit living power in us. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit of God? We're going to take a break. Stay with us. Church, I want to tell you, we have an amazing guest speaker today, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an associate professor at Houston Baptist University, HBU, where I'm actually on the board of trustees there. And he has been on Fox News. He's been on CBS News. He's studied in Oxford. You're going to be amazed with the things. He's going to talk to us about the resurrection and how we can know that the resurrection is true. And here's some really great news. His book, Unanswered, that has those questions you just heard in the video. Every family is going to receive a free copy of this book as you walk out the doors at all of our campuses, which is amazing. That's so good. So someone has generously donated to be able to have this book possible. And the donor said, when somebody reads it, we want you to pass this on to somebody else of these unanswered questions. And so Jeremiah is going to share with us that. So one per family you're going to be able to receive um, as you walk out of all of our campuses today. And it's going to be a great time. Jeremiah is a good friend, amazing speaker. He's going to touch your heart. You're going to be amazed by all that God's going to do through him. So will you all welcome with me Jeremiah Johnson. I want to say something, Pastor. I want to... I know you all know this, but Pastor Greg and Kelly are some of the finest pastor leaders in America. And I, I want to tell you this. They have ministered to my family. We were evacuated out of Richmond, uh, part of the mandatory evacuation. And Audrey and I were doing Facebook Live with Star and Stephen worshiping and then just waiting for your Facebook Lives. How God used this church, the nation watched, and they took notice. And you know what's so awesome about your pastor? We actually were going to go on Fox and Friends. I was in Dallas because we couldn't get rooms anywhere else. All seven of our family members in one hotel room. Your pastor even found us a babysitter in Dallas while he was organizing all of the disaster recovery. So, Pastor, thank you for this. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be in your pulpit today. So, love you, Pastor. All right. Buckle your seatbelt. We're going to go really fast. I want to introduce you to my family. Um, Audrey and I had an unanswered question for God. We were unable to get pregnant for five years. So let me just say this as a disclaimer because you're going to get some more information than what's written in the first chapter of Unanswered. We couldn't get pregnant. You know how difficult that is if you've ever struggled with infertility. Please be careful what you pray for when you have an unanswered question for God. Check out this picture of the rest of our crew. This was taken Monday in Richmond where we live. Lily Faith, Justin, and those are triplets. You're not seeing triple. Those are actually three boys, Abel, Ryder, and Jackson. And my wife, Audrey, is right in the center. I want her to stand. Would you greet her? Because I'm married to a superhero, and none of this would be possible without her. Audrey and I came to this point after so many no's, wondering if God was with us. I mean, I was like the Pharisees in John 2, 9, 2, and 3, you know, 
uh, woe is me, you know, who, why is this person born blind? What sin do I have in my life? And I realized that none of that was the answer, that God was with us through all that silence. And Audrey, we studied all 7,487 promises in God's word from Genesis to Revelation. You say, how, many, how do you know there are 7,487 promises in God's word? Somebody counted them up and it took a year and a half. So you're going to learn about the silence of God in your book. Jesus Christ never flinched when he was asked a question. In fact, every time Jesus teaches the Bible in the Gospels, it's interesting, the Pharisees always show up. And have you noticed when you teach the Bible, there's always a Pharisee in the crowd, a second guesser, someone who's trying to trap you? Well, Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, and the Pharisees approach them a nomikos in Greek, or a grammatus, a scribe in Mark's Gospel, and they come up to him, they want to trap him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? This was a trap question. If you know anything about Judaism, there were 613 codified commandments in the Pentateuch. That is the five first five Old Testament books. There was no right answer. Do you remember how Jesus responded? And I want you to share it out loud with energy with me, okay? Let me know you're with me. Jesus responds in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In fact, Jesus changes the Shema. The Shema doesn't say mind. It says heart, soul, and strength. Jesus comes back as only he can do, and he changes it, and he said we have to love God with all our mind. I have received 10,000 text message questions primarily from followers of Jesus in churches all over the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Europe. And so I have an informed opinion this morning that there are many of you here, if not every one of you here, are struggling with an unanswered question. And so often, many of us, that unanswered question can cause spiritual paralysis in our life. Are you here like that? Many of us, we walked in here today, and if we got brutally honest, if we could be totally transparent, we would admit that we're probably just two or three unanswered questions away from leaving our faith. At Christian Thinker Society, we minister to people who are struggling, and many, oftentimes it's believers who are struggling with the curveballs that life throws at them. And you know what's beautiful about the Christian faith? The Christian faith will help you, unlike any other religion or ism in the world, answer the deepest, darkest, unanswered questions that you might be struggling with today. And we can answer it with the Word of God and with the evidence that undergirds our faith. And yet, many churches are unwilling to even discuss your unanswered questions. I mean, oftentimes, we feel like we need to be perfect when we come to church. We can't even admit it because, after all, Christians don't gossip. They just share prayer requests. So I would never share the unanswered question that I have in my Bible study. They might think badly of me. And so we suffer in silence and isolation with that unanswered question. And that's why I appreciate Jesus asks in the gospels. If you count up every question he asks over 300 questions in the gospels. In fact, it's 339 questions to be exact. You should go home and study the 109 questions in Matthew, the 68 in Mark, the 107 in Luke, or the 55 questions Jesus asks in the gospel of John. Jesus never flinched when someone had a question. And yet, when you look what's happening on the landscape of Christianity, we're living in very unique times. As you heard from Kerry, we are living in times where there is more evidence that confirms your faith available at your fingertips than many of the great Christians have had before us. In fact, the scales of truth so tip in our favor, we have an embarrassment of riches of evidences that confirm the truth claims of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is the only religion that befriends 
archaeology. I mean, Islam is no friend of archaeology. In fact, in fact, Surah 4, Ayah 158 says Jesus was not crucified. That is false. The best established fact of the ancient world is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. If we cannot believe that about Jesus, we should not believe anything at all about Jesus or excuse me, about anyone else in the ancient world. I mean, I'm sitting at a at a archaeological site recently in Israel, and there's 300 digs that happen annually. There's two different dig seasons in Israel. And, you know, I'm listening to these skeptics. No one wants to use the Bible. And I'm watching atheists and agnostic archaeologists, and they have five books in their hand because they have to make sure they're digging in the right spot. They have to make sure the sources exhibit verisimilitude, that they're like the world really was in the first century. And do you know what five books these atheists, agnostic archaeologists, many of them Jews, uh, at Mount Zion dig, for example, do you know what five books they have in their hand when they're digging? I mean, I was fascinated. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, and Josephus. So if they're going to use the Bible, you better believe I will. There's a book that came out that Jim Charlesworth edits called Jesus and Archaeology. There is over a thousand references by eight different archaeologists and Jewish authors to the historicity of the scriptures that we find in the Bible lands. I could go on and on and on. The scales of truth tip in our favor. We should not be afraid of any question that we might have. You can find the answer in the Christian faith. And yet, what are we seeing? Because leaders define reality. 98% of Britons will not attend church today. I mean, think about that. The United Kingdom was the gospel sending nation for several centuries, and yet just 2% of Britons will attend church. Do you know why? The BBC did a did a survey. Why have you left the church? This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. Do you know what the number one answer was? The church will not answer my unanswered questions. The church will not answer my unanswered questions. What's the result? They do a census every 10 years. Report comes out just in April of this year. The United Kingdom has lost 5.3 million Christians in the last 10 years. That is 10,000 a week. And if those numbers continue, there will be no Christians left in my lifetime in the United Kingdom by 2067. How many of you want to see that stopped and turned back? I serve an amazing God who said we can love him with all our minds. I am not a dummy, as Bill Maher said Friday night. I am not an idiot, as Anderson Cooper once said, because I'm a follower of Jesus. I did not check my brain at the door to become a Christian. It has enriched my life where it has allowed every fabric of my body, soul, spirit, and mind to be attuned with what God has for me. So if I could talk about one subject and only one subject, if this was were the last sermon I would present, there's no doubt about it. I would present body of proof, seven evidences. Why can we believe? How can we know that Jesus of Nazareth physically, bodily rose from the grave? Now, really think hard with me now, Bible students, because we don't want to do heresy, okay? Heresy happens all the time in churches. Do you know what you need to do to do heresy? It's not hard to do heresy. And that heresy, if you don't know that word, it just means we're in error. We're not doing it right. It, all we need to have heresy is to have Jesus in no context, or the Bible in no context. That, you notice how all these religions and isms want to make sure they're on good terms with Jesus, especially all the made in America religions, the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. They all want to make sure they hijack Jesus. But we need to make sure that what the Jesus we're discussing is the Jesus of history, the historical Jesus, right? And so let's buckle our seatbelts. What are the seven reasons you can walk out of here knowing that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the 
grave. And by the way, why do I say this is most important? Well, the Apostle Paul did. I hope you have your Bible out to 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 3, he says this is a matter of first importance. It is the Greek term protois. Paul gives us 32,407 words in the Greek New Testament. By the way, he gives us 13 of the 27 New Testament letters. And he gives us more than any other New Testament writer except for Luke, who gives us a little bit more with his Luke-Acts sequel. So when he says, what I'm about to write is the most important, I pay attention. He said, I'm giving to you what was given to me. And he passes on a creed, an early church creed, that when you look at verses 3 through 7 and 8, you must know there is no passage in the New Testament taken more seriously by Bible scholars and historians than what our te- text is this morning. I mean, this is the mountain peak passage. This is the passage that no one questions because of its historicity. And the Gospels, we'll talk about those sources in a moment, they're excellent sources for the resurrection but they're not the earliest. First Corinthians 15 comes to us 20 years earlier. And if I had the time, I could show you the timeline. He's passing on a creed. How many of you realize the Bible did not always exist? In fact, the first century Christians did not have a Bible as we have today. They had an oral tradition called a creed. Uh, it would be like our, our Pledge of Allegiance that we grow up saying. We all know the Pledge of Allegiance. That's almost a creedal statement for us as Americans. The church had a creed that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And they didn't just say it once. They said it every time they worship together. In fact, the resurrection was so important. Every sermon in the book of Acts focuses on the resurrection. There are 300 passages in the New Testament that reference the resurrection. You're promised more than any other promise, more than 24 times in the New Testament, what John 14, 19 said, what Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And yet if we, if I was able to pull every one of you, you would probably, many of us would probably get that deer in the headlights look that some of my students sometimes get when I call on them. You know, why do you believe a Jewish criminal physically bodily rose from the dead? Go. And many of us cannot get beyond our Sunday school learning, and yet this is something of first importance. So I've put together some slides, and I hope that you can take something home today that will let you know how important it is. Point number one, how do we know that Jesus rose from the grave? Number one, Jesus' resurrection is the only way we make sense of all the mess and the suffering in our lives. I was speaking in Santa Cruz, California at Twin Lakes Church, a wonderful church in the surfing capital of the world. And as I will today, after every service, you know, my ministry doesn't stop when I jump off these stairs. I love to pray with people and I really love to sign books to people who have unanswered questions. So I'm happy to do that after the service. Lynn Wagner waits in line. She comes up to me and she shows me a picture of her two daughters. And she says, I have a story to tell you. I want to introduce you to Dan and Lynn in this image. She shows me this picture of her daughters, Carrie and Mandy, ages 14 and 16. Less than two weeks after 9-11, they were attending a Luis Palau evangelistic rally, kind of like a Billy Graham rally called Beach Fest. There were 20,000 people there. It was an amazing night. It was a Saturday night. They pile in their minivan and they never made it home. A woman by the name of Lisa was high and drunk on coke and meth, and there were no skid marks. She plowed her Suburban right into their minivan. Carrie and Mandy died instantly. Dan and Lynn had head injuries. When Lynn woke up in the hospital the next day, 
She asked her friend Sharon, first question that she was able to muster, she had a broken pelvis, she had broken back, she would be in a walker for the girl's funeral, or excuse me, a wheelchair. She looks at Sharon, she said, are my daughters with Jesus? And Sharon said yes, and she said, praise be to God. Dan, it was even more difficult because he had a head injury. He had to be told multiple times. You know, if you've ever been concussed, you'll ask the same question over and over and over again, and then you'll forget the answer. He had to be told more than once that both of his daughters had died instantly. How do you survive something like that? Because I'm sure a lot of you walked in here with a lot of weight this morning, some burdens that you're probably carrying that maybe only God knows about. You know, this is the X factor of life right here. This is the reason Christianity is relevant and not just some old irrelevant book because Dan and Lynn, when I interviewed them, they, have a, they had a decision to make. Were they going to allow this rupture of life? I mean, can, I'm a father of five. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. She said the grief was so bad. She said she just tore. They, were, they didn't even do Christmas that year. I'll never forget her saying that in 2000. We just didn't even do Christmas. We couldn't even talk. It took our breath away. But she said we began to trust in these words that give life. And they said, you know what? The Lord spoke to us. We needed to forgive Lisa. When she finished her prison sentence, we wrote just before she was released, we wanted to see her and we had to ask permission. The the prison had never had this kind of request. They didn't quite know how to handle it. So under the observation of a parole officer, Dan and Lynn finally meet Lisa seven years later. Lisa has come to faith in Christ in prison. When they see Lisa... Dan and Lynn immediately embraced her and they held on to her and they wept. They said, we forgive you. You know what's amazing? Lynn now says that Lisa is like a daughter to her. They go around to churches and talk about the power, the X factor of Christianity, the forgiveness it can bring, the hope, the joy it can bring, despite life's most difficult circumstances. I asked Dan, I said, what would you have done if you weren't a Christian? He said, I would have wanted to finish the job on Lisa But because of Christianity, it didn't end our marriage. We have hope. And he said, I'm not living my life for the 70 or 80 years on this earth. I'm living my life for eternity. And I know I'm going to see my daughters again so I can get up, I can go to work, I can live, and I can worship. That is the resurrected Savior that we serve. So, you know, I get frustrated with a lot of resurrection sermons I hear because it's just academic. It's like, how is this going to apply to my life this week? That's how it will apply to your life. It will give you hope. We live in a, in a time where wealth and connectivity, we have people who are hopeless. We have people who are even believers who have given in to despair. How can I have hope through the resurrection of Jesus? Point number two, why do I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? He foretold it. Did you know that the early church had a hashtag? It was hashtag on the third day. This was the early church hashtag. Jesus had this amazing way of messianizing passages or eschatologizing passages. He would read passages in the Old Testament and he would say, guess what? This applies to me. He did that in Luke chapter four. The Nazareth synagogue he grew up in, can you imagine wanting to kill, kill me after I spoke? Well, that's what they wanted to do to him after he gave his programmatic sermon in Luke 4. He pointed at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, said this is fulfilled, and then they wanted to kill him after he preached that. He does the same thing with Hosea 6, 2. He says, this is about me. On the third day, I will, I will be able to raise my life. I will be, be resurrected from the dead. Now, Let me show you how important Jewish burial traditions are. Check out this picture of the Mount of Olives. I want you to see this. You see this Mount of Olives, and those of you campuses that are watching, we're looking out on the Temple Mount. Do you know how sacred 
Jewish burial traditions are, this image will show you there are at least 150,000 Jewish bodies buried on the Mount of Olives because they believe when Messiah comes, he will step foot on the Mount of Olives. And guess what? They, no matter where they are in the Mount of Olives, they're buried with their feet facing the temple. Do you know why? They don't even want to have to turn around, you know, in the resurrection. They can just follow Messiah right in. Jewish burial traditions are sacred. No Jew would allow the bones of a loved one, even one who is condemned as a criminal, to go unnoticed. Okay? Think of Desmond Doss in that movie Hacksaw Ridge where he kept going back to save another soldier. And some say he saved 50 or 100. That's what Jewish burial traditions were like in the time of Jesus. Okay? Everybody got buried. You knew where your family remains were. If I had more time, I would go deeper. Number three, Jesus not only foretold it, he demonstrated resurrection power. Jesus was a popular exorcist. In fact, we often miss that every time Jesus came to town, he did miracles and he performed exorcisms. He was attacking. He said of Satan in Greek, your kingdom is telos eki. It is coming to an end. A kingdom more powerful is here. And he would cast out demons. And you know, it's fascinating. We actually have archaeological discoveries in the second, third, fourth, maybe even the first with the Jesus cup, where magicians who had nothing to do with Christianity knew this name, Jesus, had power, and they would use it in their exorcisms. So just let that sink in for a moment. He demonstrated it. Now, Jesus didn't just foretold it. He said, you know, I should probably demonstrate what kind of resurrection I'm talking about. So we see that with Jairus's daughter, the ruler of the synagogue in Mark five. We see that with the widow of Nain's son, Luke seven. He actually touches the buyer. He would have been ceremonial unclean. None of that mattered to Jesus. He said, necrosagairo. And the boy who was dead stood up. The third miracle is the most stupendous. I love this. I was studying this morning, um, verse 43, and I was thinking about Jesus shouting. Did you know that Jesus raised his voice? In fact, Jesus yelled at death. He showed up. Lazarus was dead four days. His body stinketh, according to the King James Version. He could not have been more dead. In fact, Jewish burial traditions believe that the spirit of the dead hovered, hovered over the body for three days. And on the fourth day, the spirit left through the nostrils and the face was changed. So in the Jewish mindset, he could not have been more dead. And Jesus walks up, he yells, he, with a loud voice, he says, Duro exo, come forth. And can you imagine the scene? And so think about this next slide for a moment. I want you to check this out because think about resurrection and people who have to die twice. Okay, I've written about this at a scholarly level. I want to try to explain it at a popular level. Lazarus is actually buried in two different places. Get this, the place on the left is Bethany. That's where Jesus said, come out. And then he migrated with his family to the island of Cyprus, where he died a second time. Why? Because Jesus was the first fruit resurrection, a body that would never die again. He served as an adumbration. I don't think Lazarus was afraid the second time around, do you? So isn't that fascinating? Two different burial spots for one person. I find that fascinating. Point number four, Jesus's bodily resurrection was not what his disciples or any other Jews for that matter anticipated. In fact, when Jesus gave those, you know, hashtag passion predictions, do you remember what Peter said? God forbid, Lord, this may never happen to you. And do you remember when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? You know, you're standing in the way of my messianic program that I'm bringing to earth. 
No Jew expected the Messiah to die. In fact, I just wrote about this in the Macmillan textbook for college students. There is no motivation in Judaism to make up a resurrection story if it didn't happen. I mean, think about it. In the Maccabean uprising in in the 150 B.C., you know, they were killing Greeks because they wanted to simply make Judaism you know, open. Um, they were Maccabean, uh, this Maccabean uprising, these were great heroic stories, but no one invented up a resurrection narrative. They believed their spirits went on to God and the righteous compartment of Sheol. No Jew expected a Messiah to die on the cross, no less, and even, even more, a physical bodily resurrection. How do we know this? Well, we can look at Dead Sea Scrolls like they have at the Museum of the Bible. The War Scroll, 4Q285, that is the Dead Sea Scroll found in K4 at Qumran, document 285. It says, when the Messiah comes, he will kill the Katim, that is the Ro- code name for Romans. He will even kill the Roman emperor, and the Roman occupiers will die. The corrupt priesthood will be cleansed, and Messiah will rid the Jewish people of the Roman occupiers. This is, in my opinion, why Judas had such a struggle with the ministry of Jesus. He wanted a conquering Messiah. No one expected him to lay down his life. And yes, there was Isaiah 53, but you cannot say that every Jew of every sect thought that the Messiah would pour out his life. How do I know that? Well, in the Aramaic Targums that come later, and they were certainly developing in the time of Jesus, this would be like the the living Bible, kind of a paraphrase. They actually eliminate that passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. So it's very important as a critic of Christianity... I would have a very difficult time coming up with why there are any Christians in the first place. Their founder had suffered the most heinous way to die. Crucifixion was so bad, and I read this recently in a book by Martin Hengel, the great German scholar. Do you know that, do you know what source gives us more, a more detailed description about crucifixion than any other source? The New Testament Gospels. Crucifixion was so bad, so ugly, Romans didn't even discuss it, let alone write about it. So if we didn't have the New Testament Gospels, we really would not know a lot about the juridical procedure that Jesus went through. Everything, though, we see is consistent with the sources, which leads to point number five. Are you with me? Say yes if you're with me. Okay, number five. The sources written in archaeological overwhelmingly support the resurrection narrative embedded in the Gospels. Everything we read in the Gospels smacks of authenticity. Females go to the tomb, and I want you to see these tombs, these slides, okay? It's really important we know something about Jewish burial traditions because people like Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan say, you know, Jesus' body wasn't buried, it was left on a cross and it was eaten by dogs. That is fake news. We cannot, we cannot accept that historically. So here's the Emmaus tombs. Most Jewish tombs were a meter square, and 80 to 90 percent, if you're watching from the different campuses, I'm pointing at that meter square, you know, you would put the body in horizontally. Some of the, the times you could go in, you could pray, you could perfume the body. Jesus would not have received an honorable burial, but he would have received a proper burial. So the women coming to the tomb, he's in the tomb 39 hours. After Shabbat, they come Sunday morning. That's their first opportunity. They're bringing spices. They don't know if Jesus' body had been spiced. They wanted why his body would stink. They would do seven days of mourning privately. They come to the tomb and keep in mind, if you're a female in the first century, you're not, you never got, you weren't five feet tall. You were probably 4'10", 4'11". You probably weighed 90 pounds. 
And even that, they're concerned about who will move the stone away. Let's check out the next slide. That would be a commoner's tomb. The next slide shows you what a wealthy tomb would look like. Let's go to the next slide if we can. Uh, slide number seven. This is the Herodian family tomb. If you've been to the land of Israel, this is right down the road from the King David Hotel. Do you see the difference? You see the massive circular stone that would have weighed hundreds of pounds, a diameter of about five to six feet. Jesus was buried in something like this, uh, but probably a meter square, but also a circular because they say who will who will roll the stone away for us. And then let's check out the next slide, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is without a doubt, in my opinion, the spot of not only Jesus's crucifixion, but the edicule is the very place of Jesus physical bodily resurrection. I love the garden tomb. I have a, a Jewish lacquer painting of the garden tomb in my office, but that tomb is, a, is probably from the Hasmonean period. It's probably 200 B.C. It's too old. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was buried in a what kind of tomb? A new tomb. And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has a dynamic history because... Helen in 326 AD, the mother of Constantine, she comes to Jerusalem. And this is some, you know, people in that time, in the first 200 years of the church, they didn't really move. There was a great village memory. And guess what Hadrian, the emperor, did after the Jewish revolt of 132 to 135? He thought Christians and Jews were the same, so he expelled Jews out of their homeland. Wouldn't become a Jewish state again for 1,700 years. Renamed it Iola Capitolina. And he's, he found out that this holy sepulcher, this is a really sacred spot in Judaism, this place where this, this criminal was said to rise from the dead. He actually puts a, a pagan altar to Jupiter, thereby actually preserving the spot. So when, Hel- when Helen comes to town in 326, 325, they say, oh yeah, where that pagan shrine is, that's where it happened. So that is the history, and in fact, National Geographic, next month in Washington, D.C., they're going to have pictures on display. They actually just opened the edicule. When I say edicule, that's that little temple. If we can see the slide one more time, inside the Holy Sepulchre, there's a little temple that goes over the actual place where Jesus' body, the limestone rock. So inside there, they opened it, and all I can tell you is everything that we found in this recent discovery is consistent with Jewish burial traditions. Even Jody Magnus at the University of North North Carolina, when seeing this, says, guess what? The Gospels get it right. Why Why did the earliest disciples not speak of a phantom resurrection? Why a physical? Because they knew Jesus had died. They knew where he was buried. That tomb was empty. And then they begin to have these resurrection experiences, these appearances of Jesus, which leads us to number six. It is the only convincing explanation for the conversion of those who did not follow Jesus during his ministry. The way I like to say it, and maybe you want to say it this way, Jesus did not only appear to those who believed in him, he appeared to those who doubted him and even those who were opposed to him. Let me take one example. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us know how difficult our family is to reach? And when I study the Gospels, no one in Jesus' family believed in him outside of his mother, Mary. In fact, look at this passage in Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter that uh, his, his friend said in a very pejorative sense? And they took offense at him. Not even his brothers believed in him, John 7, 5. Mark 3, 21, they actually said he's nuts, he's out of his mind. What caused his brother, his family, to believe in him? In fact, if you have a brother, raise your hand for me. I want to see if you have a brother. We have a lot of brothers in the room. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? Exactly. 
James is working in his shop. He's humiliated by brother Jesus, who was just massacred. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and said, bro, check it out. My side. Yep, I'm here. Feel me. Jesus, that James converts because evidence, the resurrection, he becomes a pillar of the church. We know he dies in AD 62, not because the Bible says it. Josephus records it, that James was stoned in AD 62. It's also why I date Acts early before that, because Acts never mentions it. I wish I could go on. That's a great point, but just take my word for it. Number seven, it is the only convincing explanation for the historical fact that everywhere the Christian faith goes, society is dramatically changed for the better. I have an insert in your book that I'm giving you today for free for my new book that comes out in four weeks. I really pray you'll pre-order it because I've written it for people like Bill Maher, who I watched Friday night talk about idiot Christians, how we need to get rid of religion, how the world would be a much better place if there was no Christianity. You know what I want to say to him when I hopefully do his show? No one was saying that in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, Bill. The church was on point. And people were happy about it. I'm going to land the plane in one minute. I want you to see this picture right now that I just showed in London at our event in May. This is Golders Green in North London. Man was going home and decided that life was enough. He was going to jump off and take his life. My number one question is suicide and mental health, by the way. I have this huge section in my book, and I hope you'll pick up the Bible study as well. On what Christians can do about this question of suicide, mental health, depression, anxiety. You know what's fascinating about this picture? I want you to study it, if you would, with me. Somebody actually had a rope coming home from work that day. You don't think God is sovereign and providential? Look at this gentleman right here clasping his calf muscles. Another guy is holding him by his belt. These people, these strangers, just going home from work. There was some God complex. and We don't know if these people are Christians or not. But when they saw that, they said, that's not right. We need to help this man. They hold on to him for two hours. You can read the story online. You can download this picture at our Facebook or Twitter page. I want you to look at this picture because I see myself on that bridge. How many of you know sometimes we need to be saved from ourselves? I pray that the resurrection will motivate you to give someone hope this week. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the humongous impact it has made not only in believers' lives in the past, but the impact it can make right now through someone who will come forward and receive Jesus Christ for forgiveness, join this church, rededicate. I pray, Lord, we'd be motivated to take this unanswered book and to take it to someone who has an unanswered question. Bless all the campuses, all the people who are praying. In Jesus' name, amen. And welcome back to the program. We have been discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And specifically, we've been discussing the filling of the Holy Spirit. And what's been so interesting about this time that we've enjoyed together is we've learned theologically clearly what the Scripture teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I just want to continue this with some final thoughts here today on this program because 
Again, friends, I'm the recipient of hundreds of questions that you all text me. You email them to me through AskJJJ.com. Uh, in our tours, that right now I'm on our unimaginable global tour, speaking probably in a city near you. I, I have the opportunity to meet so many people who struggle um, with just confusion around the person of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the third person of the Trinity. It reminds me of a Dallas seminary professor who once said, when there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. <laughs> that is certainly true because the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, is not taught enough. We call this pneumatology. We actually have that because the Holy Spirit is called the pneuma in Greek, the pneuma of God, the Spirit of God, or the Old Testament Hebrew rendering is ruach, the ruach of God, the Spirit of God. We don't teach this enough, and I want to minister in this concluding segment, and I want to talk about immediate next steps of how the Holy Spirit is going to energize your life. This is where I began in our show's intro. If you will take a step of faith and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and meet the biblical requirements, what can you immediately expect to be the byproduct in your life? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit is going to immediately assist you in your prayer life. When we are controlled by the Spirit, we will be people who pray. It's amazing when I'm Spirit-filled I am so much more reticent and hesitant to talk to man or my friend about the problem, and I'm so much more naturally inclined to talk to God about that situation or that problem in my life. So please know that Jude 20 says that we could pray in the Holy Spirit. That is praying in his strength and in accordance with the revealed will of God in our lives, which of course we know from the scriptures. Have you ever noticed this? I mean, I meet some people, and they wait in line, perhaps at an event, and I finally get around to shake their hand or hug their neck, and we finally get to that moment where they're ready to speak. And I can't tell you how often this happens. They can't even talk. They're so overcome with that burden in their life. When they finally get the opportunity to share it, they just fall in my arms. And I have a pastor's heart, friends. I am an ordained pastor, And after all, what I do isn't just about the mind, it's about the heart. And we just have this moment where even though they can't articulate what that challenge, that that question that's been paralyzing them in their spiritual life is, we just start praying. And have you noticed that when we pray, sometimes we're so overcome by a burden, we don't even know where to start in prayer. And this is where the Holy Spirit assists us. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Spirit likewise helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit prays in us, through us, and for us. Wow. Secondly, an immediate next step, if you'll take a step of faith in your life and be filled with the Holy Spirit as a result of today's program, Make no mistake, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.16 that believers might be strengthened with the might of God through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, Ephesians 3.16 says, to be strengthened with the might through his Spirit. So if you need more inner courage today or fortitude, more spiritual stamina, and hey, we all need that. I am overwhelmed by the evil in the world around us. 
And yet I can persevere because the Holy Spirit is strengthening me, according to Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering. Make no mistake with joy. That's what the scripture teaches. So, friends, not only will he assist you in prayer, not only will the Holy Spirit strengthen you, but make no mistake, he will lead you. Now, how does the Holy Spirit lead us? The Spirit leads us into truth. This is why I love Christian apologetics. This is why I'm so thankful for the Jeremiah Johnston Show on Faith Radio Network. The Spirit of God will always lead you into truth, not confusion, into holiness. And he will give you the discernment. You will know discernment. You will know the will of God for your life. You know, we have decisions we need to make all the time. What college should I attend? What career should I pursue? Who should I marry? What business decision should I make? Should I go right? Should I go left? What if you're faced with two good decisions? Which is the right one? These are the things that we have to have the mind of Christ. We have to know and be able to discern God's will. I like this guidance. Take a piece of blank paper, write your name at the bottom, and ask God to give you the directions. Do you hear what I just said? Get a blank piece of paper. I want you to write your name at the bottom and just ask God to give you the directions that you need and say, God, this is your map for my life. You know, too often we want to see the will of God before we make our decision to do it. But that attitude won't work. So we need to present ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And then quickly, he will always give you hope. If you're hopeless today as a Christian, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit fills us, Galatians 5.5, 5, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Oh, these are the great things that we've learned from today's message. If you're just joining us on Faith Radio Network or uh, if you're just joining us through the Faith Radio app, I want to encourage you to listen to this entire program via the podcast. This is why I encourage you to subscribe to the Jeremiah Johnston Show. You know, when we eat at a good restaurant, we want to go back and eat there again, often ordering the same exact thing because it was so good. Why would we think less of our spiritual life? This is why these messages that we create on this program, these interviews, these conversations that we have that balance biblical depth with the culture around us and the evidence for the faith that is so overwhelming. These are things you should listen to again and again. So let me encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You can just hit subscribe. It will populate on your smartphone. Pray for this program. Pray for our producers. Pray for Faith Radio Network. Pray for me. Pray for our guests. And please share it every single week. The program is created, creates a blog where we just summarize the program for you over at the Faith Radio website. You can share that on your social media, and you can, you can definitely share this with your pastor. So I would encourage you to do that. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Remember what 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I know you're leaving today's program strengthened. It's been a delight to have you with us. We'll see you next time on the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Thanks for listening to the podcast from the Jeremiah Johnston Show. I definitely want to hear from you, so if you have a follow-up question from today's program, you can submit it to me at www.askjjj.com. You'll also see how you can connect with us from there across social media. And don't forget, these conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now to the Faith Radio Network at www.myfaithradio.com. And to avoid missing future editions of the Jeremiah Johnston Show, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. You can do a Google Play RSS feed. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of the program.